Thank you for listening to this gospel resource from Cornerstone Baptist Church in Wiley, Texas. Feel free to use or share this resource, but we ask that you not alter the content in any way. For more information about Cornerstone Baptist Church, please visit us at cornerstonewiley.org. All right, so those who are coming in late are going to miss good stories, but that's, that's, uh, that's their fault for showing up late. And I really need people to fill in the purple seats because it's really, really taxing my OCD. That this is not <laughs> matching up. So this, is, this is bad. But Yeah, this is also the Sunday that we tax our circuit breaker capacity over here. And if you're in the market for a new crock pot or Instapot, you can have all the, the looks at, all the gadgets that are out there right now. It's, it's a pretty nice little like Bed Bath & Beyond thing going on over there. <laughs> Pretty nice, and this is also a bad Sunday for us if you haven't had breakfast this morning because you're gonna be smelling that the entire morning when we're in here. So, anyway, let's get started with a quick word of prayer. Uh, we're gonna remember, I don't know if you guys saw the email or not about Kim uh, Gillespie, uh, she's still recovering in the hospital. Uh, let's keep her and the Gillespie family in your prayers. Thanks, Father, for this morning. And we do bring before you our friend, uh, the Gillespie's, uh, Tim, Kim, and Ty. We pray, Heavenly Father, your healing over Kim, and that as she rests and recovers, we pray, God, that. The prognosis will be uh, uh, positive and optimistic. We pray also for the family as they learn to uh, uh, care for their wife and mother, that they would uh, find ways to encourage and strengthen her. And we pray, God, that you would return her to our fellowship soon, that we may also find ways to uh, love and strengthen her and uh, outdo one another in showing uh, good deeds towards her. Uh, bless us now and this morning as we consider your uh, teaching about uh, how we how we instruct our children. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, look, all of our children have that occasional spat over toys, right? You remember what I'm talking about, right? That, that little crazy argument over the one toy that they have to have, but they don't have. And as soon as they have it, they want what the other kids started playing with again, right? We all have, all of our kids have this occasional argument over our toys. And that toy argument is just downright exhausting, if we're honest about it all. Uh, I, I, I know our kids argued over toys. I don't remember ex exactly what toys they would argue over, uh, but I remember that they would argue over things that just do not matter in the long term. Uh, for instance, the boys used to play this imaginary game in the back of the van on road trips, and I can't remember exactly what they would call it, but they would look out the window, they would imagine these machines like rampaging on, on the edges of the highway, knocking down billboards and crushing buildings and toppling over other cars, and they could switch them out for other machines of some sort. And somehow they would, had created a point system within this game as well. And so as the more billboards they crushed, the more points that they would earn or something like that. Pointless game to me, but it kept them entirely occupied in the back seat, and I was pretty happy with that fact as we're uh, making our way towards our destination. But inevitably, there would come this argument over the awarding of points. And they would argue about these points till I, I just, I couldn't take it anymore. They were arguing over imaginary points in an imaginary game. And it drove me nuts. And so I would wait, hoping that this would be the time that ultimately they decided to be mature and settle the issues on their, on their own. But then I would have my hopes dashed on this particular car ride every single time. So I would have to do the only thing I, I knew to do at the time and know to do even now is I would just stand, start handing out millions and billions of imaginary points. I just determine who is aggrieved and say, congratulations, you now have a gazillion new credits on your system here. It's great. And that would have satisfied everybody, sort of, until we arrived at our lunch spot or dinner spot. And now, if you don't understand me by now, you need to remember that I'm, I'm Dutch. I come from the Dutch people. 
And there's an old joke within the Dutch culture that says, how do you kill the Dutchman? You throw a penny out on the freeway, right? That we're we're very, a very cheap people, uh, and notoriously so. And, we, and I, I, I'm especially cheap when a penny can easily be pinched, and I was especially so when I was younger, and frankly, we just didn't have a whole lot of money to be thrown at anything. So we would often order sufficient food for the boys at the restaurant and then ask them all to share a drink. So we had four kids, so they would each one drink per two. I thought that was pretty reasonable. Of course, these aren't like bottle drinks that you get out of the... I mean, that's way too expensive. We're not talking about bottle drinks that are like limited. We're talking about the type that you could take the cup back to the soda fountain and get an unlimited amount of soda that you wanted out of that machine, right? Well, one of our children had a really tough time with this. And, and if you're familiar with sort of birth order theory, it won't take you very many times to guess which one of these children had the most problems with this. And he would get so worked up that his brother was finishing his drink. He was drinking more than his share of the, of the drink. And he'd just get red-faced mad about it. And more times than I cared to count, I'd have to get his attention. And, 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 of course, I'm at this point also annoyed because I'm not able to eat my food that's nice and warm. But I'd have to point to the soda fountain and remind him that beneath that machine lay an infinite supply that you could literally lay down underneath the nozzle and drink until you burst. And it would be just fine. But they would have to argue about the stupid infinite supply of Coca-Cola in the machine. But I think my very favorite childhood squabble that was over absolutely nothing between brothers has to be when two of them got hung up on controlling the shop vac. Yeah, the shop vac. It was, I don't know what the game was that they were playing, but they got just bothered by this shop vac. Now, I, I don't know what they were playing, but as you know, the, the shop vac, uh, you know, if one end, it, it vacuums in, and then that, that vacuum is created by a, a motor that blows things out, the exhaust port on the backside. So you can actually turn the hose around. One side can be the vacuum, the other side can be the, the, the blowing, the air machine kind of thing. Well, here are the two geniuses of the Dice household standing in the garage, absolutely red-faced, yelling at each other, one saying to, to one kid, no, 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 you suck, I blow. And turns around and says, no, 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 you blow, I suck. And this was the argument that went on for an unlimited amount of time. It, you, no, 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 you suck, I blow. It's, it's a crazy kind of world in which we live in where our kids can argue about who sucks more than the other. But uh, this is exactly what we face from, from that moment. I want to talk today about moving from discipline to development of character. This is what we've been talking about for a long time on all these fronts. Uh, we spent the last couple of weeks talking about specifically with discipline. But as these stories are sort of illustrating, when, I, when we got to that moment of you suck, I blow, uh, we had really entered a new stage of parenting. Uh, in none of these situations, whether it's the imaginary games that were played in the back of the car, the unlimited amount of soda that was under the machine or whatever, None of those situations had our children being disobedient to us. They, they weren't being rebellious towards us in our authority as parents. They were simply putting on full display that their hearts are filled with absolute foolishness, and their behavior was showing that on full, full, full tilt. They lacked the character that was necessary to navigate what was of critical importance to them in that moment. And there was something deeper underneath them that they, they didn't understand. And so there was a time for addressing the behavior right in that moment. There's a limited supply. You don't call your brother someone who sucks or blows. She's walked in, she knows the story immediately. Oh yeah, told that story. But they, 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 they had something bound up in their heart that needed to be addressed. Uh, and you can, there, there are a lot of parenting books out there that will give you, I don't know, seven simple steps to producing well-behaved children. Uh, we've we've kind of taken our shots at those types of books throughout this entire course. 
you might control your behavior of your children long enough that you at least get to the restaurant with minimal embarrassment from your kids, but the emptiness of character will be on display again before very long. If we're just about controlling the behavior and not getting to that heart issue, we're not getting to what really needs to be addressed. And some weeks ago, we started addressing this issue, at least on what I might call the philosophical level, right? We, we, we started talking about the importance of setting goals and developing character. And in fact, we, we set aside most of our goal setting to focus upon an overarching goal for our children, one overarching goal in, in parenting, which is building godly character by reorienting what the hearts worship. So we wanted to refocus what our kids were worshiping on in their hearts, uh, all the idols that our, our little idol factories are able to produce, and instead we wanted to reorient that heart worship to the Creator itself. And you will recall that we built that foundation upon Romans 1, revealing that when the natural man worships the creature rather than the Creator, it produces what Romans 1 says, all manner of unrighteousness. That's what the natural heart tends to go to by itself, by default. So it's unsurprising that our children default to these really petty disagreements over imaginary points in an imaginary game or whatever it might be. That's their natural man coming forward to, the, to, uh, to, to their behavior. Unregenerate hearts produce unregenerate living. We should not be surprised by this whatsoever. The natural man produces all manner of unrighteousness. They simply act in, in condition to what they actually are. Our duty then as parents is to get behind that behavior and behind that pettiness of the argument and to the heart that produces that behavior. And as we said in week four, when we were looking at this initially, here's what I said. I know what I said because I wrote it down in my notes and I can I could actually copy and paste it into this one. Here's what I said. I said, to combat that idolatrous heart, we are called to instill, to cultivate the fruits of the spirit of God in the hearts of ourselves and of our children. So we're trying to to break apart these two distinctions, right? Galatians 5, the works of the flesh are these things. The fruits of the spirits are those things. We want less of the, the works of the flesh, more of the fruits of the spirit. That's what we're trying to do. We're trying to cultivate that fruit of the spirit in our, in our kids. And this is daunting because, as I said back in week four, the natural progression of sin is never itself towards holiness. We, we don't slouch towards holiness ever in our lives. Instead, Romans 1 reminds us that the natural man produces all manner of unrighteousness, and Galatians 5 shows us what those works are, what those works of the flesh actually are. And frankly, when we look at them, they're terrible. They're actually frightening if we really think about it. And so if we're going to look at character, we need to start by defining it, or at least this is what lawyers like to do. We want to make sure we understand what the words mean when we, we want to uh, define an argument. So Ted Tripp provides us a definition of what we'll use as uh, the definition of character for this conversation. I think it's a good one as well. He says, character could be defined as living consistently with who God is and who I am. Character is living consistently with who God is and who I am. We understand both parts of that equation. We can understand better about what character actually means. And if we're living inconsistently with those two things, with who God is and who I am, then we're having a hard time developing character in our own lives. So following that helpful de definition, we can pretty quickly understand that there may be a temptation to develop a sufficient number of rules for our kids that might follow them to stop um, that they might follow in order to stop them on their natural-born quest to produce all manner of unrighteousness. But I think this is a fool's errand. I don't think there are enough rules in the universe to be able to control our children from saying, you suck, I blow. I mean, this, there aren't enough rules out there. for you. And if you need to create a new rule to develop the uh, you know, infinite supply rule, you're not going to be able to address that one because there's going to be another one that follows after that. 
And really, if we think about this development of rules, if, if the development of rules, presetting even, I don't know, let's just pick a random number, I'll pick 10. Can you pick just 10 rules to be followed and insist that they be followed precisely? We could even call these commandments. And if you follow just 10 commandments, if that was not sufficient to produce a righteousness leading to salvation, then what makes us think that we can create a sufficient number of rules for our kids to follow to produce the sufficient character in them to navigate their own lives? Certainly in the first stage of our parenting, during those youngest of years, even as they age, um, we, we need to insist on obedience. We're not wiping the slate clear here and saying obedience is not necessary anymore by the time you hit age five or six or whatever. No, we're setting that foundation in obedience so that we can later on develop the character that comes from that. So we, we, we never waive that issue, but we have to start there as well. Our, our children must obey. They must obey right away and all the way and in that happy way. All those things, that, that is good for them. Obedience guides them through the valley of the shadow of death, as we talked about. And, and the discipline that, that keeps them on that path helps them in their sojourn. But, and if we've done all that we can, if we've done to insist upon obedience during those early stages, we will also have put down the rebellion against authority, the authority that God has placed in the lives of our children. So all of that is very important to setting the stage. And while we don't abandon discipline as we turn into the stage of developing character for our kids, we do begin, move for, begin to move from putting down outright rebellion through <laughs> discipline to guiding our children's hearts through discipleship. But if we insist only upon obedience to the rules, and this is another problem with just following all the rules, we'll produce little Pharisees. Uh, they'll have learned to follow the rules, they'll become very smug about that, and they'll even become very self-righteous in their own uh, thinking that they can accomplish all the rules to achieve the character that is necessary set down by the rules. We don't want to have just rule-based following. We're here to develop their hearts and put character within them. And having put down and kept at bay that spirit, that, that, uh, the spirit of that natural man, that rebellion to the Creator, we're then tasked with guiding the character of our children. And, and Ted Tripp, in his book, he provides us what he calls a three-pronged tool for diagnosis. Uh, the diagnosis is uh, a grid by which you can measure the character needs of your children. And this is a, uh, again, this is not uh, written down in stone, so this is, this is good wisdom for us to think through, but it's also not the thing that's going to develop the character of your kids. It's merely to say, okay, who are they in this moment so we can figure out how to instill the character traits we want to have in them. So it's a three-pronged test or a three-pronged diagnostic tool. First, he says that you should begin by assessing your child's relationship with God. What is the relationship that your child has with God? This is not so much evangelistic as it is practical. Uh, what do you as parents discern the nature of your child's relationship to God to be? Uh, here are the, the litany of questions that Ted Tripp asks at this stage of the diagnostic. He says, is your child living in a conscious need for God? And what is the content of his relationship with God? Is he concerned to know and love God? Is God a source of strength, comfort, and help? Does he make choices that reflect knowing God? Is he moved by God's ways and truth? Is he alive to spiritual realities? Is there any evidence that he is carrying on an independent, or at least independent from you as a parent, is he carrying on an independent relationship with God on his own? Are there false gods before which your child bows? What are the things without which he cannot be happy? What things other than God seem to motivate him? Does, <clears throat> does he ever talk about God? How does he talk about God? How does he think about God? Is his God small or is it grand? Does he think God uh, as a friend, a judge, a helper, a taskmaster? Is he living out the fullness of seeing himself in Christ or is he trying to worship and serve himself? How does your child view God and how does he stand 
in relationship to what he views as God. These are diagnostic questions that are help us to perceive where our child is in relationship to God. And to shepherd his heart, we need to understand at any given moment where our child is spiritually, how our child understands the nature of grace and of salvation through faith in Christ. That's going to make a big difference on what we're able to instill in terms of character on them when it comes to where they stand before God. Do they need to know more about this God? Do they need to know more about his wrath, his forgiveness? All these things are things that will, all these understandings are ways in which we will begin to understand and then be able to develop character in our children. So that's the first stage of the diagnostic tool. What is the child's relationship uh, to God? The second diagnostic question or point is, is is the child in relationship to himself? So it should come as no surprise that all of our kids are are different, right? Uh, they're different. They're unique. They all have their their own way of handling life. They all have their own personalities. Uh, each of them view themselves differently, and within the family structure, they view them differently and distinctly from their siblings. But do you understand, as a parent, how your child views himself? Uh, Does he understand himself well? This is what Ted Tripp says. He says, we are complex combinations of strength and weaknesses. There are things that we can do with ease. There are things that, other things that are painful and arduous. Understanding these things can enable us to shore up our weaknesses and develop our strengths. Your child needs to accept and appreciate themselves as unique combinations of strengths and weaknesses, as persons who are exactly what God wanted them to be. Help them to embrace themselves as good enough to do all God has called them to do and has called them to be. In a word, you want them to be content with themselves. We're trying to help understand, we're trying to seek ourselves to understand the child's relationship to himself. And as we understand how our child views himself, then we can have the ability to provide character lessons that are custom designed to address the thing for which his soul thirsts. If there's something missing, if there's a parched and dry moment within the soul of that child that we can see, okay, this is how he is missing himself and understanding himself, well, then we can custom design lessons to provide character uh, guidance to them and, and, and to satiate that desire to understand who they are in themselves. The character lesson that works, though, for the one child that's brimming with a kind of self-confidence that leads to arrogance and cynicism it has to be parented differently. And so we have to develop a much more uh, custom program of character development for the kid whose confidence is easily bruised and vests his opinion of himself far too much in what the opinions of others are. So both are appealing to different works of the flesh in that, right? The one is arrogant and filled with pride and selfishness. The other one uh, is is, uh, lacking in self-awareness and and, and confidence in what God has, has wrought in his life. Both of those are appealing to works of the flesh. Both of them need to be pointed to different fruits of the Spirit. And and if we understand how the child views himself, then we can better articulate how that child can achieve the fruits of the Spirit and put away the works of the flesh. And once we understand where our child stands in relationship to God, how he understands himself, we can then third move to the third part of the diagnostic, which is, uh, we can look at how our child relates to others. So here we have a child relationship to God, himself, and now looking to others. And this is understood through the answers to questions like these. What, what are your child's relationships? How does he interact with others? What sorts of relationships does he have? What does he bring out in others? Are his relationships even, or is he always in control, or is he being controlled? 
Does he fawn for the attention of others? Is he pleasant with, uh, with uh, other children his age? How does he deal with disappointment in people? How does he respond to being sinned against? What are areas of regional, relational strength and what are his weaknesses? These are all questions that are focused on the external part of, of who our child is and how he relates in the universe, not just to God and his private thoughts, not just to himself and the areas where nobody hears the questions being asked, but how do we see him navigating the world with other people? How does he respond to those things? Understanding how our child views himself in relationship with God, in relationship to himself, and in relationship to others gives us a pretty accurate picture of who they are and, more importantly, where their affections lay. And before I move on, let me just kind of make sure we point this out, which should be somewhat obvious here. This may be maybe not a precise diagnostic tool. All diagnostic tools are only as helpful as they work to produce a diagnosis, right? It may not be precise, but it is a tool for you. Now, here's what I mean by that. It's, it's only going to be helpful as you choose to use it. God has given you your children. He didn't give you my children. He gave you your children. And, and more importantly, th these are not just generational assets for you, right? These are, these are not things that just simply allow us to feel good about ourselves, extend our lineage to another generation, provide for our retirement living or whatever it might be. These have been given to us by God that you might focus your energies upon them, that you might study them, that you might engage them, and you could learn their strengths and their weaknesses. God has given you your children, but his divine creation order is that those children are a product of two individuals. This is not mere procreation. God's design for the family is for parents. There's an S on the end of that word. It's plural. God has, His design for the family is for parents, plural, to be raising children. Now, given the fall, there are circumstances that produce situations where that plural becomes singular. That's not the ideal. That does happen, and we account for that, like we account for many things that the fall affects in this world. But the fact that there is a, an exception to the ideal does not obviate our duty to develop character in our children. It just simply makes it more difficult, right? My point, though, is that you, parents, are in this together. God has designed you to do this together. Each of you are going to see things in your children that the other person does not, perhaps cannot, see. Because you are likewise unique, you provide very helpful insight to your spouse that further reveal the character needs of your children. I can speak from my experience. You know, I've got four sons. I don't have any daughters. My wife had all sisters and no, son, no brothers. There is a certain amount, and she is herself female, if that's not quite obvious in this universe. There are certain things that she just does not understand. Why are boys so excited about scatological humor? Like, there's just, they don't, she does not understand it. I can't fully appreciate it either, but at least I've lived it and perhaps never grown out of it. <laughs> there are certain insights that I am able to provide that are hard for her to understand, and vice versa. There are ways that she sees my sons that I can't see because I've just assumed that that as part of being male. There is a beauty in that complementarity and that God has designed that specifically for for. Uh, the raising of our children, uh, because that is true, you, you should as regularly as possible, whether formally or informally, engage this diagnostic tool together. Right? Uh, sometimes that's just on the fly as you evaluate 
what just happened, right? Your kid stormed off and you're still kind of reeling from the shock of what just occurred. You look at each other and be like, what just happened here? And you can have a quick diagnostic about what's going on in their lives. You can sort of think through that. When your child's character or lack thereof is on full display, you have that moment to sort of address it. In that sometimes it's while you're getting ready for bed or just getting ready for work in the morning or whatever. And you remember seeing something in your kid that triggered a thought uh, about their character, about their relationship with others, about their relationship with God. Maybe you're tucking them in at night and they said something in their prayers or in your conversation that re revealed a deep truth about how they view God. Uh, or, or perhaps they, re they uh, confided in you about a relationship with someone else. Well, one spouse was there, one spouse was not. And th that's a good moment for you to sort of exchange information to say, here's what I've learned about our kids, right? <clears throat> it's a way for us to be able to uh, look into what it means for their character development. It's a great tool for us to be using. Maybe you're like these strict type A folks who want to take time each quarter to sit down on a, a regular amount. They probably pull out a piece of paper and they go through these diagnostic questions. They maybe even log them and kind of measure them over time. I'm thinking of p potential CPAs that may have children in the future that probably want to do this and are thinking through it even now. Is there a big spotlight feeling on you, Micah, right, right there? Yeah, that's all right. No, it, that's good too. I mean, if you want to sit down at regular intervals to measure out how things are going with your kids, by all means, do it. That, that's a great tool to be. The point is that you will recall, uh, or is that you will recall, that you recall that God has given you a spouse for more than just creating children with you. He's designed husband and wife also to be mom and dad. That's the creative order. He's designed husband and wife to be mom and dad co-equal in authority, but complementary in design. Don't lose sight of that. And our world today, by the way, is going to fight you on that. Every stretch of the, every, every word of that is going to be fought. Uh, co-authority, complementary, mom and dad, husband and wife, all of those words are antagonistic to how the world views today. What we think that that means in the scriptures, what is revealed to us in the scriptures, what that all means, is completely opposite from what the world is going to try to sell you. But I want you instead to reject the wisdom of the world and to seize upon that grand design that will help you to diagnose the character of our children. I'm saying that for a couple of reasons. One is what the Bible tells us to do. That, that should be obvious. We're in Sunday school after all. I shouldn't have to really point that out, but I want to remind you that's what God designed male-female relationships to be, husbands and wives to be, mom and dads to be. That's important. But I want you also to see a bit of encouragement in that. Uh, let me talk to both categories here. Moms, I need you to see in that that these are your kids, and that God has given them to you for a reason, and that he has given you a helpmeet in your husband to carry on the duty of creating character together. You're not alone in that. Husbands, you do not get to procreate and move on. You are also to be a helpmeet to your spouse, to your wife. You are to be leading her and encouraging her, strengthening her. The scriptures tell us to wash her with the, the, the word, right? That's part of our job as, as husbands. But also we are designed to be dads. And we're not meant to just simply procreate and move on. We're a part of the lives of our kids. We're a part of the lives of our spouses, and if we are going to do this individually, it's going to be far more difficult than if we do this together. 
So God has given us this great complementary design. He's, he's given us that co-authority as parents to be over the raising of our children. We have different perspectives. That means we're complementary. We, one may have some weaknesses over here that has strengths over here, while the other one that has strengths here has the weaknesses. We fit these things together in a complementary way. That's part of God's design. And I want you to embrace that design. Because when we embrace that design, Really good things happen. When we, when, we, when we embrace the things that God loves, good things happen to his people. And part of the good things that happen to his people in this situation is it allows us from two different perspectives to understand the character needs that are there and present for our children and that must be developed. We can see them better. So enough of harping on that. I want that to be an encouragement to you. I hope it is somehow. Uh, you're not alone in this whole thing. You're in this together to figure this out. And some days when they outnumber us in the family, it's good to know that we have at least one other person on our side trying to uh, develop the character in our children. So once we understand what our child's relationship is to God, to himself and to others, how then do we go about developing character in our children? Well, we, by now the answer ought to be pretty obvious. I've said it often enough in this class, we're going to train the heart. Right? We, we're getting beyond the issue of behavior. We're trying to peek around the behavior and into the heart of the child. This would be a lot easier if the heart were just sitting there, right there in a Petri dish or something like this, for us to tinker, tinker with a little bit and tighten and, and stretch and optimize for uh, efficiency and usefulness. That would be a lot easier if that were just the, the issue right there. But instead, what we're given is this behavior. And by now, you should know that behavior modification is an insufficient means of producing character. And it's, it's insufficient beyond its helpful pointing to what's going on inside the heart. Or as Ted Tripp says, behavior is a manifestation of what is going on inside. What a person says or does mirrors the heart. Or if you don't want to take Ted Tripp's word for it, let's just point to the words of Jesus, which are much more authoritative, of course. He says in Luke 6.45, for out of the overflow of his heart, his mouth speaks, right? What comes out of a person's heart in terms of behavior is just what, the behavior we see is just an overflow of what's going on in their heart. I said that backwards. For out of the overflow of his heart, the mouth speaks. His mouth speaks what's already going on inside the person. You should view behavior, even bad behavior, even good behavior for that matter, as a divine blessing. Behavior reveals what is going on inside the heart so that parents can begin addressing why it's going on in the heart. We can bring in a third authority, Jiminy Cricket. Mm -hmm. Now, there are, is everybody of an age enough to know Jiminy Cricket? Have we forgotten who Jiminy Cricket is, right? I mean, look, like younger, like, do we remember this? Okay, we, we do, we remember Jiminy Cricket, all right. What was his big line, right? What was his song? Always let conscience be your guide. Didn't he have it like on like a little metal that gets at the end from the whatever? Yeah, always let conscience be your guide. Okay, that, that's a silly notion in some respects because, I mean, if, if the conscience is just seared to the flesh, then the conscience guide is the blind leading the blind to death. I mean, it's not a good thing, but the, the concept is a good one. We, we want to appeal to this thing that is God-given, this conscience that's in our, our children from their creation. And if behavior is a manifestation of the heart, then the heart has to change. If the heart only changes through the conviction of sin and the conviction of sin comes through one's conscience, then we must enable our children to see how their behavior is actually sin-driven. God has given us the conscience as a means to afflict the heart. And we can look at Romans 2 for this. Romans 2, verses 12 through 15. Here's what it says. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. 
For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show, and here's the payoff verse, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. God has sent your children pre-installed with a conscience that will either accuse or excuse them. Now, there's a whole lot to be said about a conscience, right? Now, I, I don't have this time to be able to go into what that means, but you need to understand, at the very minimum, that God has pre-installed, he has hardwired a conscience inside of your kid. Your child comes pre-installed with this conscience. It's either going to accuse or excuse. And rather than follow the litany of rules that make them become smug Pharisees or defiant to your rules, helping your child see that their behavior is a constant contest between who God is and who they are, that's what develops character. Constantly pointing them back to who they are apart from Christ, but who God means them to be, is the thing that will help us to develop character. Here's what Ted Tripp says. You cannot try to build good qualities of character within him without reference to God. If you don't call him to be what God has called him to be, your child, you end up giving him a standard of performance that is within the realm of his native abilities apart from grace. It is a standard that does not require knowing and trusting God. In other words, you cannot try to build good qualities of character within him without reference to God. You either call your children to be what they cannot be, apart from grace, or you reduce the standard, giving them one they can keep. If you do that, you reduce their need for God accordingly. Instead, you must be willing to hold your child accountable to do those tasks that have been given him to do. So our duty then as parents, if, if what Ted Tripp is saying is true, and I think it is, our duty then is to take that manifestation of the heart, that behavior that we see in front of us, and reveal to our children how that behavior reveals the status of who they are in relationship to God, who God is, and more importantly, the, it, what it reveals about how they, they must adhere to what God demands of them. That is where character is developed. Take that argument over the toy, for instance, or any of the imaginary games that you may have to intervene with imaginary points for. What's actually revealed in the argument over the toy well, it's not just ultimately about the toy. It doesn't really matter about the toy. That's not what's going on. My son arguing about his brother drinking too much Coke is not about the drink. There's something deeper that's going on there. What one child wants, the other one has. And rather than the one child preferring what the other has, he demands it for himself to the point of being willing to use force to take it from him. At its core... This is what we call selfishness. That's a work of the flesh, and it's counter to the fruit of the Spirit. So we are then seeing the two contrasts that Galatians 5 gives us. There's a lack of self-control. There is a, 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 a selfishness and a, and a, and a lack of the, the peace and patience and gentleness and kindness that comes through the fruits of the Spirit. Right. While we may settle the issue for the moment by insisting that the kids share, and maybe even setting a couple of rules about how we go about our sharing, that's not unhelpful, but it's not ultimate. Uh, we will not have helped our children navigate their relationship with God, with themselves, or with others, 
if we fail to help them see that their behavior is driven by a sinful selfishness, selfishness bound in their hearts, and that is a sin that separates them from God, but that God is rich in mercy, not only forgives them, but transforms this selfishness, this selfish work of the flesh, into the type of self-control and kindness that he prefers and wants, or that prefers, and, uh, prefers the wants and desires of others. That's the fruit of the Spirit. So we're rooting out the works of the flesh while pointing to and cultivating the fruits of the Spirit in our kids. You see, it, you and I as parents seeking to parent biblically have a longer-term vision for parenting rather than just settling the, the immediate dispute about whether one kid sucks and the other kid blows, right? That, that's important to settle those little temporal debates. If you came in late, there's a, there's a good story that backs up on that, by the way. I don't go around just saying that our kids suck and blow. There's, it has to do with a shop vac. So I'm sorry if you came in late. You missed it. You missed a great story at the beginning of it all. You have to go back on the podcast and, and listen to the whole thing. But I just realized that there was about half of you that came in after that story, and that could have been un, quite unsettling. We do want to settle those short-term debates about the thing right in front of us, the, the stealing of the toy, the selfishness that's immediately on display. Yes, we've got to kind of rein in some earthly behavior. But if all we do is rein in that behavior, we're going to be reining in that behavior until they go to jail. And then the world will be reining in that behavior behind bars. Our job is not just simply to keep them out of jail. That, that's, that's a hopeful byproduct of our parenting. Our, our real goal, though, is much longer term than that. Uh, we settle short-term behavior with a view to the long-term character that we wish to see produced from the heart that is changed by the mercy and the grace of our Creator. That's what we're after as parents. Yeah, we, we want to solve that short-term burst of selfishness, but we want to exchange it for a character that says, I prefer you over myself. I've got good news and bad news on that front. It does happen. But it doesn't happen today. It's a long-term marathon as a parent. So don't give up if you make one lap around the track and your kid is still trying to steal the toy from the other kid. He's still influenced by the works of the flesh. Unless we think otherwise, we're suffering from the same fate. We keep running around the same track trying to steal the thing from somebody else all the time. This is a long-term project, one which you'll need to be Unfortunately, forced to return to time and time again, the weeds of behavior have to be plucked out at the root of the heart. So don't grow weary in this. Instead, reflect upon how your focus is upon helping our children live consistently with who God is and who they are is also what God is doing in your life. You may recall that when we talked about goals and character back on week four, now seven weeks ago, uh, I, I pulled out an extended quote from Ted Tripp's brother, Paul Tripp. They both have good mustaches, good parenting skills, apparently. And I, I want to reread that here as, as an extended quote. And as we ex exercise our parental authority over our children, we need to keep in mind that this is exactly what God is doing with his divine authority over us. So much of our parenting, uh, of seeking to develop the heart-driven character of our children, it is merely a reflection of how we are being shaped by God the Father ourselves. All right, this is, this is what Paul David Tripp said in his book. He says this, Think of how God works in your life. He is not content with just forgiving you for your sin. Having forgiven you, he is zealously committed to transforming you. He doesn't just target those intentionally rebellious moments. He works on the character of your heart as well. 
so that you progressively become what he designed you to be because he is committed to character change. Your Lord goes after the idols of your heart and he will not rest until every thought, desire, choice, word, and action is fully rooted in the worship of him. You and I are still blessed every day with his fatherly care because the war of worship still rages in our hearts. That's what God's doing in our hearts, all right? Now, here's what he says more. Now God calls you. He calls you to do with your children what he graciously does with you every day. Help your children understand and own what rules their hearts. Help them see how what controls their hearts shapes how they respond to people and situations. Make the character worship connection again and again for them. And as you do, remember that you are functioning as a tool in the hands of Capital One, who has the willingness and power to free the hearts of your children from what he has captured, from what has captured them, and in freeing them, implant new character in their hearts. Our goal is to transmit what is being done in our hearts to the hearts of our children. We may not have a magical cricket to help us uh, have our conscience be our guide, but we do have a divine Savior who is intent and active in work on your hearts so that we can then mirror what God is doing in our hearts as we see what our children's hearts that they inherited from us are doing themselves. Let's pray and we'll be done. Thanks, Father, for today. We are grateful for the work you are doing in our heart, the divine pruning you are doing for us to make us more and more like the image of Christ. And so, Father, help us to work uh, to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, that we may be more and more like you every day, that we would be removing the works of the flesh from our own hearts by your divine grace, and that you would cultivate in us, through your Holy Spirit, the works of the Spirit, of love and joy and peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, and self-control. And may we then be able to transmit that cultivation in our children, that their hearts might also be changed. We first pray, God, that the hearts of our children would be awakened by a divine act, that they would be replaced from cold, stony, dead hearts to hearts of flesh that beat in obedience to you. So, Father, would you remove the hearts of, of uh, stone from our children, and would you give them a heart of flesh? And when you give them that heart of flesh, would you cause them to obey all that you've commanded? And in whatever way we as parents may be able to act, as uh, those under authority ourselves to you, our divine authority, may you give us the strength for the task the, the endurance necessary to carry it through over many, many years. But may we see the fruit of our efforts. And may we rejoice in knowing that whatever goodness comes out of our kids, whatever character is developed in our kids, is not ultimately at the successful hands of our own, but at the, <coughs> the kind guidance and direction of the, of the God who created them. And may they in turn go and parent our kids according to the way that you shape them. Thank you for this. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.